0: This is a the last part of the last, the second part of the last church of Laodicea. And the reason why I broke that church up into two parts was because I've, I wanted to go into some practical ideas for um, ministry, for how to look at what all is happening and transpiring. And I couldn't do that all in one sermon and cover the church. Um, and I know there's probably people listening or watching at home that uh, hasn't been through the whole series um, so I'm gonna quickly go uh, do a summary of the series quickly, um, and because you can go back and watch those videos and those sermons. But about 13 years ago, um, I did this sermon. It was over the Church of the uh, the, the Churches of the Revelation. There's seven churches, but I did it in one sermon. And after the sermon, I quickly realized there's way too much material for one sermon. So um, about a year or so ago, I was like, you know, it'd be really interesting to do East Church and do a sermon dedicated to East Church so that we could dig a little bit deeper into East Church. And so, um, if you don't know, the Church of Laodicea is the church of our time. And so, I think I thought it was, we need to dig a little bit deeper into it. Um, if you want to go back and watch those sermons, just go to our YouTube channel and look for the, the, the Churches of the Revelation, and you'll see all the videos from. I did a sermon over Patmos. I mean, over John the Revelator on Patmos, and then I did all the churches in order. All right, and so let's quickly kind of go over a summary. If you haven't been uh, been here to go through these um, churches, uh, the significance of the letters um, John wrote to each of these churches it was that each of these were churches that existed in the time of John, and there were uh, there were churches that in those cities, and he wrote letters to address the condition of that church. Um, and also, this, this was just, these letters were also a prophecy, and they prophesized time periods from that period all the way to the end of time when Jesus came back. And so if you just read through that, the, the first part of Revelation, and read through the churches, you're going to miss a lot if you don't stop and really dig, deep, uh, dig deeper into it, because he's doing a lot with these letters. The Lord really um, showed him a lot here. Um, and if you don't know, the churches are, if you think about the Mediterranean Sea, the churches are all located in the present-day country of Turkey um, and on the coastline. And if, and if you look at this map here, you can see um, you can see Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and all the churches along the coastline. So if you're wondering what part of the world that is, that's around Turkey, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, that part of the world. Um, and I think this is a little bit you can see it a little bit better in this in this picture here along the coastline of those cities. Okay, and so what I want to do now very quickly is to go over the time period of each church and what was happening at that time. The first church was the Church of Ephesus, and that was the church of John's time, and that was from around 31 AD to around 100 AD, and this is what was happening. Ephesus is the first, and it was the church of John's time. It was, its time was from Jesus' resurrection to around the death of the last apostles. This early church was pure and eager to spread the truth about Jesus to the entire world. Jesus said they had left the first love. In that sermon, we talk about, remember, these people actually knew Jesus, and they had that first love that if, think about when you, for if you weren't born into the church and you came into the church, Think about that feeling of excitement and, and, and passion that you had for the Lord when you had that first love and you, you were excited and you were ready to work and you wanted to share the message and the gospel and how you how wonderful it was with everyone that you met. That's the way this whole church was. They were filled with the first love, but there were problems and they, and they were led away from their first love and they had to reattain that first love, and it was important that they do so. Because in the next church, um, the church of Smyrna, they were about to go to a persecution. And the church of Smyrna is from around 100 A.D. to around 313 A.D. And this is when um, uh, the persecution, the 10-year persecution specifically, happened to the church. And let me read about Smyrna. Smyrna means a sweet smell like a perfume. This was a time when God's people went through a terrible persecution by the Emperor Diocletian. They would have tribulation ten days, which is ten years. And in prophecy, a day represents a literal year. This refers to the ten years of persecution under pagan Rome from 80, 303 A.D. to 313 A.D., where thousands were slain. Their faithfulness as they stood for his truth were like a sweet perfume to God. This is one church that Jesus had nothing bad to say about. And basically, when in that sermon... From from the Church of Ephesus to the Church of Smyrna to this persecution, there were persecutions, but they were on the local level. They were not like the whole the whole uh, like Rome itself wasn't persecuting Christians. But this is when the, the the emperor actually put into law and 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 started persecuting church as a whole, and this was a terrible time period. And if you notice, this is the one, one of the two churches that, that he didn't have anything negative to say because this is when the church was growing and and they, they were standing firm for their love for God because they had that first love in their heart. And so that's what happened with this church. But then as Satan has his way, he knows man's heart. He knows how to uh, tear us down. And he realized that the more he persecuted the church, the more the church grew. So he changed his tactics, and in this church, the Church of Pergamos, which which is from 313 A.D. to 538 A.D., this is the time period where there's the rise of the papal Rome. And specifically, let me read about Pergamos. Pergamos means lifted up. This was when Constantine... Pretend to be Christian, and it began to be popular to be a nominal Christian. This church covers the period of 323 A.D. to 538 A.D. I got it wrong on the slide. During this time, we see the rise of papal Rome, the idea that the bishop of Rome should rule the entire world as a god on earth. This letter is addressed to those who were clinging to the truth and were not going along with the, with the wrong that was coming into the Christian church. And if, In that sermon, we talked about this is when they started. To, he started to merge paganism and Christianity together, and he made it popular to be a Christian. But as long as you conform to this 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 um, blasphemous pagan Christianity that was happening, and if you didn't, you were, you would be ostracized, like just like uh, like always. But basically, if there was like a, a pagan statue in the city, all they would do is. Rename that pagan statue to like a christian um, um, name, like you know one of the apostles or something, so basically you could keep your paganism, but in the name of christianity so this was this was a time period where you really had to stand firm in the truth and not conform to the world like we are today, <laughs> or you were going to get caught up in this in this um in this situation here, and then from there, God's people had to leave and 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 leave the popular church of uh, the the church um, of Rome and go out into the wilderness. And this was the beginning of the Dark Ages. And this is the Church of um, Thiratira. And this is from. Um, make sure I got the dates right. This was from 538 to 1517. In there, and, and in this church, which means sacrifice and humani- humility, we see Jesus is no longer talking to that great church that had set itself up as the ruler of the world, but rather to his true church now hiding in the wilderness. The apostate church had not rep- uh, repented, but had kept on doing wickedness and bringing in pagan practices. Jesus had removed their candlestick, and they were no longer any church of his. The faithful who refused to go along with the majority have fled into the wilderness areas Wilderness areas, and now Jesus sees them as his true church on earth. This is the church of the 1260 years of papal persecution from 538 A.D. to 1517 A.D., the start of the Reformation. Jesus is pleased with their works as they humbly do their best to serve him and still share his truth with the world, though often it costs their lives. Their works were so wonderful that Jesus mentions them twice. So this is... This is when the wildernesses and those groups of people come into to the picture here. This is when Rome takes away the Bible and takes away anything where you could study on your own that made you dependent upon them to give you the truth. But these people had to go into the wilderness, and they kept the, the, the truth alive, and they would, they would write down the truth and, and keep it and spread it amongst uh, people that they came in contact with. And then the next church in the church of Sardis, from 517 A.D. to 1820, this is the beginning and the time of the Reformation. The truth is starting to come back into play here. Um, And let me go ahead and read this is from 1517 to 1820. Sardis means what remains. And we see Jesus saying that there were still some good things remaining in this church, but they need to be strengthened. This is a time of the Protestant churches that grew up out of the Reformation. The Reformation started out as Thyatira, humble and faithful, eagerly searching the Bible for heaven-sent truth. During this early Reformation period, this church was still um, um, Thyatira. But there came a time when they stopped seeking for truth and became proud and stopped searching for the scriptures. Instead, they made creeds and decided they would not believe in anything that their fathers had not believed in. The, um, then Jesus could not teach them anymore. He told them that even though they, taught, they thought they were so good, they were spiritually dead. Basically, this is when um, tradition, people started clinging to tradition. If my father and my grandfather did something, that's what I'm going to do. And you will see that t- that is still the case today. When you're trying to reach somebody and share the truth with them, you can even convince them that the truth is the truth. And they still Will not change because they don't want to leave their church or they don't want to change the 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 traditions of their family. How the, the days that they worship, the days that they work, whatever it is, because that is what they've always done and they're, and they're comfortable in that. And so that's what he's talking about with this church. Then the next church comes, the church of Philadelphia. This is the this is the time of the great um, disappointment. This is from 1830 to 1850, and this is the church through which the Seventh-day Adventist church came out of. This is where we come from. Philadelphia means brotherly love, and this is one of the churches that Jesus had nothing bad to say about. This is another place where we see that heaven does not look at things the way we do. No history book made by man would have declared that the Advent movement and the Millerites of the 1830s and 1840s 1844 were the true church for that time, but this is exactly what we see in this message. Here again, we see false Christians that that say that they are Jews and are not. These were the ones in the popular churches who rejected the message from heaven about the end of the great prophecy of the 2300 days in 1844. In the Sardis church, Jesus warned that, that most of the church was dead or ready to die spiritually. Now, most of the church became um, Follow and become the synagogue of Satan As they rejected the message of Jesus Soon coming they showed that they did not Truly love Jesus and Satan came in way in, With his ways and they welcomed him Basically what's happening in this Time period is that the Seventh-day Adventists what people don't realize Seventh-day Adventists Are Methodists And Baptists and Catholics And all the different churches And all those people when they were studying And the, the, the truth of being revealed Across around the world these people started to come together around the advent of the second coming of Christ. The problem was they had the wrong, what they thought was happening wasn't actually what was happening. It was that the Lord was going into the most holy place to judge, not to come back to, the, to earth. But you had a lot of people who were joined this movement whose heart weren't convicted and they hadn't changed, but they were just doing it because everybody else was doing it. And the moment they realized that what they thought the second coming of Christ that he didn't come back, then you saw the true colors they came out and they persecuted socially the people who were in that movement and who were still digitally studying trying to figure out what happened and then when they realized oh this is what's actually happened those people came together and formed the Seventh-day Adventist Church that's what happened and then the, and they and they were persecuted socially for that for that for that time period but then that leads us to the church of Laodicea and that is from Um, 1844, 1850 to the end of probation basically our time this is what it is and this church is the this is the most pathetic church of all the seven churches and uh, if you'll uh, open your Bibles to Revelation 3 verses 14 through 22 let's read what the Lord says about the church of Laodicea and I'll give you time to that and then while you're doing that, I'll explain. I want to talk about the condition of the Christian in Laodicea. I want to talk about um, a return to holiness. And then I want to talk about ministry, how Jesus ministered in his time and how we should be emulating what he's doing and using that as practical advice about how we're supposed to to behave as Christians now considering everything that's going on, how do we effectively go out and finish the work so that we can bring this to, to an end. So, this is Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22. 14. To the church of Laodicea, and unto the angel of the church of Laodicea, with right, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would that I would that worth cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I would spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods, and have nothing, have need of nothing, and knowest that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. And white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyesalve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame and, and sat down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Okay. So let's, let's first identify or let's look at the condition that we're in. If you really stop and think about it, we're in a unique period of time, right? Almost every prophecy in the Bible has already been fulfilled. We don't have to go on faith that, some, that the prophecy is going to be fulfilled. We've already seen it in its fulfillment the the one that we're waiting on is the second coming of Christ you would think that having the proof of history we would be the church that would be the strongest of all the churches why is it that we're the weakest and it has to do with conformity Satan knows what he's doing he has us conform to the world and, and a lot of us don't even know it He has lulled us into sleep. And I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about the church. We're walking hand in hand with the world, and we don't even realize it. And I think that the Lord is doing in this one. He's not just appealing to the church. He's appealing to us one-on-one, individually, trying to get our attention on a personal basis. And that's the key to getting through to the end when he comes back. So, This is to the end of probation, and let me read about Laodicea real quickly. There are two churches that Jesus said nothing bad about, but here is the saddest church of all, for Jesus has nothing good to say about them. This is our time starting about 1852, and it is important that we understand this message. Laodicea means judged, for we live in a time when the investigative judgment is taking place in heaven, and to see who will go home with Jesus and who will not. This church is so bad that Jesus says he is going to spit them out because they are disgusting to him. Spitting them, spitting them out of his mouth means he will not plead for them without Jesus. To, and without Jesus to plead on their behalf, they are lost with no hope to ever see heaven. At the very time in history when they should be eagerly seeking God and preparing for Jesus soon coming. They are worldly and indifferent. And indifferent is a perfect description of where we are right now. They, they just don't care. And that is the greatest insult to God possible for man to make. The sad thing about these people is that they think they are perfect. And when they are not right at all, what can we do? We must believe what Jesus tells us, that we are a mess, poor, blind, miserable, and naked people. That's as bad as it could possibly be. And I'm going to start right there quickly. If you just listen, get online and listen to people talk, people, it's not that people are even talking bad about God. They completely dismissed him. They talk like it's just a far gone conclusion that we know God doesn't exist. They don't even like it's not even an issue anymore. Have you, if if, anybody who's been online, have you noticed that they don't even take the time to insult Christians and God anymore because they just have dismissed him? That's the state of the world and the state that we're in right now, and I'm talking about Christians. I I I was I was listening online to a, a Christian. And he just said that, you know, the stuff in the Old Testament, that's just a metaphor. It's not real. He believes in evolution from like 20,000, 30,000 years ago, but he calls himself a Christian. And this is the norm now. That's the state of the church today. It's more people like that than there are people who actually believe that the Bible is true and what it says is true. When something is a parable in the Bible... He said this is a parable. <laughs> he didn't say that Genesis was a parable. He never said that that was a parable. But they just accept that that's a parable, that that didn't exist. So if you go back and listen to the, the sermon I did on the latest in the first part, where we go through the statistics, there's no wonder the church is dwindling at the speed at which it is. To the point that if the Lord doesn't come back, there won't be a people left. He has to come back. So let me keep going here. Jesus tells us what we need to buy of him. The the, the gold is Jesus' faith and love. The white raiment is the uh, righteousness of Jesus. The eyesalve is the having the spirit uh, teach us and guide us to know what right from wrong. So we can clearly um, see what is really going on. It also refers to the extra guidance that Jesus has given his last people in understanding the prophecies. We need this eye to be able to correctly see the truth hidden in the scriptures. To apply it, we need to carefully study the inspired word of God, praying for the Holy Spirit to teach us personally. Sweetly, Jesus seeks to encourage us by telling us he is rebuking because because he loves us. Then he must repent and be sorry for our sins and pray, asking Jesus for the white raiment. His perfect character, gold. Uh, Which means the faith and love of Jesus, the eyesight for our spiritual eyesight means we need to have the Holy Spirit to teach us and guide us as we diligently study the Bible in the spirit of prophecy's writings. Then in the strength of Jesus, we will obey what we find there. Jesus is outside the hearts of the people in this church. He warns them he may have to reject them, but he is trying so very hard to get individuals to open up their hearts and let him in so he can recreate and save them. There is something important to notice. Jesus is talking to individuals here. All the man-made churches of this day have rejected Jesus as leader. And now Jesus is saying, any man, anyone at all who wants his company, we will, he will come in and live with that person. What a wonderful thought, and you can enjoy living with Jesus yourself today if you would just let him into your heart. It is a wonderful experience. The people of this church will end up in two groups. By far, the largest group will keep thinking they are just fine. Nothing is wrong with them in other churches. They like to, call, like they like to be called Christians, but the love, the love, they love the ways of the world more than the, the things of Jesus. In their churches, they have gotten used to taking the, world of the, the word of the minister ahead of the word of God. In the final test, they will obey men's rules and be lost. We don't want to be lost and think we're just fine. We need Jesus in our hearts. Let me, let me stop right there quickly. And I was watching something else online this week too. It's become a form of entertainment talking about ministers um, in these big churches, um, basically sinning with their with their pe- with their with their flock. And it's become norm. Like everybody's laughing about it. Normal to the point where, like, it's it's getting really scary. How comfortable the Christian world is with sin, that our ministers don't even see a problem with it. And so I think the point is when you really stop and look at this church, and you look at it from the lens of the whole Christian church, not just the Seventh day Adventist church, but the whole church, it's a very sad situation. It really is. And it's only getting worse. So let me finish this here. The heavenly teacher inquired, what stronger delusion can beguile the mind than the pretense that you are building on the right foundation and that God accepts your works, when in reality you are working out many things according to worldly policy and are sinning against Jehovah?" Oh, it is great deception and a fascinating delusion that takes possession of minds when men who have once known the truth mistake the form of godliness for the spirit and power thereof, when they suppose that they are rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing, while in reality they are in need of everything. The other group will believe Jesus, repent, and ask Jesus to come in and take charge of their lives. They will ask him for the white raiment, the gold tried in the fire, and the heavenly eyesaw. They will apply the heavenly eyesaw through careful personal study of the Bible and the spirit of prophecy writings. They will invite Jesus to come in and live with them. Jesus and the Holy Spirit will work in them and with them, and they will be ready to meet Jesus. They will follow and love the truth of God's holy word. They will refuse to follow the laws of man that will force them to obey God's law and break his Sabbath day. In the final test, they will stand in the power of Jesus and so some people are teaching that we can't overcome sin even in the power of Jesus but Jesus but here we see that the only only those who overcome be the cause what it may will sit down with Jesus in this kingdom and so basically Jesus is pleading with the individual Christian now he's saying look any man that will open up the door he will come in It is not too late for anybody. That is why he is procrastinating this return. He's giving us time. He's trying to give us an opportunity in all the confusion and all the conformity that's happening. He wants us to stop and to do what I would call a self-evaluation, to look inward and say, where am I in this walk with little word? Am I closer to the world or am I closer to God? That's really where we're at. And so so here are some questions you can ask yourself, because this is where I want to get into some practical things here. Do you still have your first love? And I did a whole sermon about this, and you can go back and listen. But do you still have that first love? And for those of us like myself that were born into the church, do I have the passion of those that have their first love? For me, it's a little bit a little bit weird because I was this is just normal to me. Like I never was lost out in the world and then came in and knew that feeling of being saved. For me, I've always felt saved. Like I've always I was born into the church, but I have. But that's really kind of dangerous for me, because when I see somebody that comes in, then you can see that first love. It makes me say, oh, I don't have that. What is that? What is that? unquenchable desire to just go out and just spread the gospel. You know what I'm saying? Like, study people who are on fire for God and then say, what is it about them that's on fire and what do I need to do to get that? Because that's, because the problem is, is in the sleeping virgins, and that's what they're talking about here. When you're, compl- when you're complacent, when you're not on fire for the Lord, when you are bored Going through the motions, you fall asleep because you're bored. You're lukewarm. You're That's why he's saying he'd rather you be hot or cold. If you're cold, he can reach you. If you're hot, you're all, he's already reached you. But when you're lukewarm and you're comfortable, you don't want to change that. Like you're just good and you, and you don't think you need anything. And And then if you feel like you do have that first love, the last step is, Have you come to a place of holiness? Because he asks us to be not only Christians, but to be priests and priestesses of the Lord. That's a step beyond just, oh, I'm I'm good, I accepted the Lord. He asks you to be a priest and a priestess, to be holy in his sight. What does that mean? So I want to read a little bit here about returning to holiness. And what I like to do is I like to find online people who kind of have summarized kind of what I'm thinking so that I can get these thoughts out clear. Because if I just talk, I'll miss a lot of stuff. So let me just kind of read what, the, what I found online. A return to holiness is a must if the church of Jesus Christ is to be what we what he is coming back for. Yeah, because Remember, the church is the bride. He's a bride and he wants his bride to be ready for him when he comes back. The Apostle Paul wrote that he might sanctify or set apart and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that it should be holy and without blemish, Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. It was noted that the ultimate purpose of Jesus' love for the church is to present her to himself as a chaste bride. As a man wants a sexually untainted virgin as a bride, so Jesus wants his church to be without moral flaw. However, the church in many instances has deviated from its intended path. The church in its condition today isn't going to work. This is one reason why his people will come out of all the churches, the people who have have cleansed themselves and have brought back that sense of holiness. Those are the people he's going to call his, uh, his church when he comes back. It doesn't mean, so there's no church you're going to join that that you're a part of that church, that you're part of the church. It's going to come from an inward thing. Where are you in your walk with Christ? And you could be a part of a church or not, but you. But he's going to call them out, out of all churches because the church, the system that we have today, is not what he what he's coming back for, straight and narrow. The church, in many instances, as previously mentioned, is walking hand in hand with the world and failing to recognize it. A new generation of believers is coming into being that is casting away the path of righteousness and living righteous living, and pursuing a path contrary to the straight and narrow way Jesus spoke of. Jesus said, "Enter you at the straight gate, for wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat." Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads to, this, to life, through there will there be that find it matthew seven thirteen and fourteen. It was noted that to enter into the straight gate means that one must come through the narrow gate in order to reach the path that leads to eternal life, though many are on the broad way that leads to destruction, Christ is both the gate and the way, and God enables men to find that gate. Scripture reveals, behold I Jesus. Stands at the door uh, and knock, and if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Revelations three twenty. This was addressed to the Laodicean church to return from their lukewarmness and enjoy his blessings again. That's for our kids. This is this is why it's very scary for our kids. They've got so many voices telling them this is the way, this is what you do, this is where you go, and None of those voices are from the Lord. This is all from Satan trying to lead them away. This is why wide is the path to destruction. Because there's only one path, and that is through the Bible, the word and truth of God. And our young people are not reading the Bible the way that they should. This is why the church is dwindling at the rate that it is. Because they're, they're, they hear so many things coming from music and entertainment. From politics and from the world and all of it is just a big distraction away from the truth. And if we should ask for the old paths, the, old, the ways of holiness, the prophet Jeremiah proclaimed, and this is an example in the Bible. Thus saith the Lord, stand you in the ways and see and ask for the old path, which is a return to holiness. Where is the good way and walk therein and you shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk therein. Also, I set watchmen over you, saying, hearken to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not hearken, Jeremiah 6, 16, 17. And God's response to their rejection, Hear, O earth, behold, I will bring evil upon this people, even the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not hearkened to my words, nor to my law, but rejected it, Jeremiah six nineteen. It was noted that the people's stubbornness, uh, stubborn refusal to walk in the traditional ways, Moving in their own paths, following their own way, would eventually lead to their downfall. We are living in a generation that is no longer walks in the path of sanctification, righteousness, and holiness in accordance with God's word. A return to holiness would necessitate those characteristics. One thing, if you think about it, in our, my fathers and my grandfathers and all their time, at least they pretended to try. <laughs> They're not even pretending anymore. It's just the world is what is my truth and what, what, is, what do I want? What makes me happy? That is the prevailing thought. Today. They're not even pretending to be um, righteous and holy. It's, it's a really scary situation. And so I'm going to go to the last part here. I'm going to skip this one little part. So what do we do? <laughs> What's the practical advice here? Well, we just talked about the condition of the heart of the Christians in Laodicea. The answer to that part of the equation here is study about how to return to holiness. Not just a Christian, but a Christian who is, whose path is to be one and one with the Lord. That is what we should be studying and, 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 and striving to do. As we do that, we are still to finish the the mission to spread the gospel, which is to minister. One thing I have learned about getting that first love or something, like to be passionate about something, you do it through action. The more you invest in something, the more you become passionate about that thing. So if you want to become passionate and get that first love for the Lord, it is to get active and passionate about doing his work. That is what he called us to do. And I think the answer comes down to relationships. The effectiveness effectiveness of your ability to minister comes down to the the, the quality of relationships that you have made with the people in your sphere of influence. Um, What Jesus would do is he would talk to people, identify their need, and then address their need. He built up this relationship with these people first so that when he was preaching to the people, those people's hearts were already open because he had already addressed their needs and built a relationship with those people. So we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. We just need to follow his lead, do what he did. And with all the tools that we have at our disposal, we can do it. Very, just as effectively as the enemy is using those same tools to, to pull people away from God, we can use those tools to do God's work. So let me give you some ideas. Let me read this article and give you some ideas, and then we're going to talk about what I think will be a great way for people to do ministry in small local towns. Because not everybody lives in the city, not everybody lives in, these th- in, in I guess, I, for, for sake's purposes, third world countries where it's more common to be poor than rich. What do you do in these small communities of people in a country where we have everything? <laughs> How do you minister in these places? Because I'm telling you, it's actually harder here than it is there in those places. So here's this: needs. What does that mean? Look up the definition of the word, and you will find a statement like this one: "Something that is necessary uh, that is necessary. As humans, what do we need? What is necessary? In the field of psychology, a theory proposed by Abram Maslow and still espoused today ranks the field of psychology, um, I mean, ranks our needs as human beings. Needs take the form of a pyramid and build from basic to self-actualization. Basic human needs, according to the ranking, are food, shelter, friendship, love, and security. These basic needs must be met before a person can move upward. Why is that important? Why spend so much time on these dry um, psycholo- um, psychological theory? Because Maslow, knowingly or unknowingly, synthesized the work of Jesus. Jesus' ministry was comprehensive. Hand in hand with preaching the gospel, he interacted with his community. He lived and worked amongst the people. The Bible makes a point of emphasizing that Jesus did not shy away from interaction with people. Tax collectors, prostitutes, lepers, fishermen, children. Temple um, leaders. While mingling with people, Jesus provided a variety of needs. Let us take a look at this in the case of uh, Zacchaeus. Um, (laughs) Zacchaeus. Sorry, my mouth. Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector of Jericho. As chief tax collector, he was wealthy, so his financial needs were met. Jesus' interaction with um, Zacchaeus. Sorry, I'm saying his name wrong. Did not center on providing an economic su- solution. Instead, it focused on another need. As a tax collector, um, he was someone who reject- He was rejected by society. According to Ellen um, G. White, um, he was detested by his countrymen. His rank and wealth were the reward of his calling. His need was to be accepted to become a part of his society. So notice that what, sh- what they're saying here is his need was not the same need as other people. His need was his financial needs were already met. What he was was going on with him was that he because he was detested by everyone because he was a tax collector, and if you know what tax collectors did in that time, they were the people that people just like you just you're the worst of the worst and they just left them alone. What he needed was to be brought back into the community and to be to feel a part of the community again. And Jesus recognized that. And that's why he started meeting those needs. Jesus met those needs by not only acknowledging him, but also by sharing a meal with him in his home. Emotionally, Jesus established a friendship. Societally, he created a way for him to become a part of his community again. Jesus acted as a reconciler, a conduit for him, to become a part of instead of standing apart, isolated. We often think, of, think one-dimensionally when considering what is a need often focusing on food, shelter and clothing the main ideas covered by Maslow's hierarchy these are tangible items that are easy to focus on however we often forget the intangible needs that are just as important friendship and emotional connection and support there, these are also basic needs that have to be met when we are mingling with our community we have to pay attention to emotional needs Listening to that elderly neighbor whose friends have passed away or who no longer receives regular visits from his family members, the nursing home visits that we take for granted can can become ways to establish a relationship with someone to provide that support system they may no longer have and that they long for. Other examples. uh, Examples of Jesus meeting uh, needs are referenced in Mark 5, 22 through 43. In the course of these verses, Jesus ministers to physical needs, healing, and life for the woman with the issue of blood and and Jairus' daughter, respectively. Both were unknown to Jesus. Both sought him out for his healing, and both trusted that he would address the problem they brought to him. There was an immediate and pressing need in both situations. The woman suffered from her illness for years, and this was her chance to get help. In her desperation, she reached out and touched Jesus. She did not approach him. Did not ask him for healing. Instead, she believed that some form of contact, no matter how small, would be enough. Jairus asked Jesus to heal his daughter, not knowing that he was dead. His request was verbal, but he did not expect Jesus to leave what he was doing and come with him. He believed that a form of contact, a prayer, no matter how small, would be enough. In both cases, Jesus went beyond what was asked. He reached out, acknowledged each individual, and created a relationship. As an extension of that, he also provided the healing that requested again they what we can learn from this example how can we meet physical needs the first step is to be aware that there is a need in the instance of the woman Jesus knew there was a need he felt her touch his response he became the source in response he became the source of healing once again reconciling her back to her community through meeting a physical need repeatedly we hear that the world is full of people who are suffering where do we begin in our neighborhoods our workplaces grocery stores and areas where we gather in making a connection with someone we build relationships and opportunities to meet a variety of needs the most difficult part in ministering to those to the needs of others may be reaching outside of ourselves again this is modeled by jesus When he called um, Zacharias down from the tree, it was in a public manner. He chose to share a meal with someone who was ostracized by his community without the hesitation that comes from considering what others might think of and from the fear of losing his place in society. In order to minister to the needs of those around him, Jesus put aside in very tangible way considerations about reputation, status, and how he was viewed. He became part of his community. Already I can hear the question forming. Are you trying to say that Jesus conformed? No, the clear illustration is not one of conformity. It is one of compassion, of reaching out and providing while maintaining his role as Christ and Savior. What does that mean for us? We are charged with the following Jesus example and administering to the needs of those in our communities. So, because here, here's, here's the question. We've done so much evangelism. We've put a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of passion and have borne little fruit, and I and I, you can just see it in people's spirit how hard that is because you want people to see the, see the blessing that the Lord is, and you want people to come into the church, and you want those people to grow and have that relationship with God. And when and when it seems like people just don't care, that's 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 a very hard thing to do. And so I've, I've had conversations with several people, and we were just talking. So what do we do? What do we change? What like what part? What, what are we not doing correctly? And this is my opinion, and I think this is what, where the problem kind of comes. I think we should still be doing all the evangelism that we're doing. But I think where we're failing is that we're not actually doing the first part of the process, and that is going out and building relationships with people in the community one-on-one, not as a church but as individuals. It's easier to get people to do stuff when they're your friend than when you're just a stranger. A friend will go to and come to an event. And in fact, the most people we bring to our events are people that we already know. So I have an idea. Why don't we use the tools that are already out there that the world is using to bring people away from God. And let's use those same tools to bring them to God on a one-on-one individual basis. You have so this is a five-step process here. The first part is to do exactly as Jesus did. To go out into the community and talk to people. Just, just whenever you go out. You don't have to make a special trip. But when you go out, look around you and look for people who look like they need somebody to talk to Because trust me, you'll see them. I have had some very interesting conversations from people, from strangers, because they just needed to talk. And it seemed like when people realize that you're a stranger, you have nothing invested in it, you don't have anything to gain, but you're willing to listen, they will pour their heart out to you. Because people don't feel seen and heard anymore. Even though it's social media, people are just talking, 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 nobody feels seen or heard. Lots of people feel invisible. Lots Lots of people feel unimportant. And the problems that they're going through, sometimes just having somebody to listen to those problems can be a blessing. Trust me. Some of the most powerful things I've seen out there is when I just, I I was walking in Walmart and I just, and I round this corner and I saw a group of people all just praying together. Somebody just reached out and said, hey, would y'all like to pray? And people just, people still desire God, even if they don't realize it, they need it. God is still desired. And it's just a matter of going out and recognizing, get out of your own little world and look around you and find people to talk to. Find out, and then find the need. What is the need? What is it? The, do they need just someone to talk to? they need somebody to, um, do they have a physical need? Do they need somebody to pray with them? Whatever it is, what is the need, and how can you help with them address it? That's the first part. That's the second part. Talk to people. Identify the need. Third, help solve those needs. A lot of these, we can help, we can help with, them, or we can show them, where to get the help for those needs. It doesn't have to be you all the time, but if you can help them, that's better. So now you've talked to people, you've identified a problem, you've helped them at least get started to solve that problem. What's the next part? This is where you start using the tools that are available to you. At any point in time, you always use what's available to you, and a lot of times in the past, I would just come to my home, we have group meetings, and we talk. That's, that's what it was. Now we have blogs, email, Facebook groups, social media, podcasts. You can still do home meetings. Any way where people can follow and listen to you and start building a relationship with you, who can ask you questions. So what if you had, a, let's just say, a blog? Say you had a blog or a podcast. And every week you just brought up a topic of something that's going on, and then you break, that, break the problem down, and then take the Bible out and explain spiritually, what does the Bible say about this subject? What does God want us to do about this subject? And then allow people to ask questions and talk to people and build a relationship. This is still a one-on-one thing here. It could be a Facebook group. Some people just want to get on Facebook and do this, write a post. Once you start building this group of people from your small community, people who are following you that you've built these relationships with, then in the last step, when the church does an evangelistic series, you invite your group to that series. I think that would be a lot more effective than just having a series and then just inviting people to come to it. It all comes down to relationships. If we're not building relationships, you're going to struggle. This saving souls is a personal and social thing. If you're afraid to talk to people, and, a lot, and trust me, I get it. It's, that's, that's a scary thing for a lot of us. I'm an introvert. Actually, a lot of people think I'm not, but I'm actually an introvert. Those of you who really know me know I'm really an introvert. But the more you do something, and, or think about it like this compassion. I was working at my job in, at Walgreens, I am the manager right i 'm bringing people out, and it 's like eleven o 'clock at night i don 't know what it was on my face; it had to be something going on in my face because i don 't remember exactly what it was, but I was going through it was a tough time it was going up in. This woman walks up to me and she goes i don 't know what it is you 're going through. let me pray with you because you 're going to get through it and she prayed with me, and I was in tears by the end of it. I needed to hear that to be reminded the lord loved me and that we were going to get through that time period that's what people need and when you show love and compassion for people your fear will go away because it's more important to have compassion for people and to reach and try to help people than it is for you to be comfortable and in your fear that is where we're going to have to get to and think of everybody in this church did some form of that where you're building your own little tribe of people that are listening to you, who are are asking you questions about the Lord, asking you questions about the Bible, and then we do have a series come up, and everybody's inviting their people to come. That's how I think the church can grow. Even in a world and environment where people don't care, and where people are in their own little bubble, and they're not listening to anybody. Even in an environment where there's churches on every corner, because that's a lot of the problem, there's churches everywhere. And so they just ignore everybody. <laughs> people have and another part of it, people have made a decision too. A lot of people, this is not a problem of awareness. People know about Jesus Christ now. The thing is they've made decisions that they, they, they don't care. So how do we reach those people? And the only way to do it is on a one-on-one basis to learn what is going on in that person's life and to help them to to improve and make their life better. Then once be we've given we can ask them to come and listen to what we're trying to do. That's just my, that's just what I've been thinking about. It's a relationship thing. We get real comfortable just hiding in our homes because we don't want to be a part of this world. We see all the stuff that's going on and we don't want to be a part of it. And so what's the natural thing to do It's to go home and hide. It's, it's when we go out in public, we're in our tunnel zone. We're grabbing the things we need and we're gone. That's, that's what we naturally do because we don't want to face the enemy on head on like that. We don't have to be pastors and preachers. We just have to have the courage to talk to people, build relationships and share the gospel. That, that's basically it. Through action, you will get your passion. Through passion and, and, and just accepting Jesus Christ into your heart and moving to a place of holiness, that is what that, that is going to wake us up And allow the Lord to work through us. Because if you think about it. We're supposed to be in a place where we could go heal the sick. We can raise the dead. Everything that Jesus Christ did. We have the power to do. Through Jesus Christ. Through God's father. But we're not doing that are we? I I had a member. I'm not going to say who it was. And their question was to me. Why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we? When we've had some people. Pass away the last couple of years, and it's like, why couldn't we heal that person? Why couldn't we um, do something? And it's it's a hard question to answer because it's like I know what we're supposed to be able to do, but we're not doing it, and it has to. Because you not know, your comfort in the word God is why you're healing. Exactly, we're doubting ourselves. Because we don't, we, I think deep down you know you're not where you're supposed to be. You're not. We, we when we look at ourselves, we know I'm trying really hard, but I have conformed to the world in X, Y, and Z ways. And I think all of us can look at ourselves and, and think and, and and recognize that. So what the Lord is asking us to do is to say stop, look look inward, and less. Correct that. Let's get to a place of holiness. Let's have some compassion for people. And let's go spread the ministry the way Jesus Christ spread the ministry. And if we'll do that, he'll take care of the rest. He didn't say, you go out and save people. He said, go spread the word. Go plant the seed. It's, the, it's God's job to convict hearts. He'll handle his job and we'll just do ours. And so that is basically the church of Laodicea. We're pitiful. We're a church that has all the, the things that, that, that were said to happen have already happened. We should be a lot of years ahead of where we are. The Lord has, should have already come back. But he hasn't. Because we, we're, I don't know, we're, getting, we're just being drowned out into this world of conformity with the world. But there are going to, but it will come a time when Christians, true Christians, are going to say, enough of this. And they're going to return to holiness. And they're going to come out of these churches, and they're going to be part of that 144,000. And then when these last day events happen, they're going to be the ones who obey God and not conform, because they have not been conforming. And then that's when the end will come. So it's up to each one of us. To look in the mirror and say, where are we at in our walk with Christ? Are we just going through the motions? Or are we serious about going to heaven? Are we serious about spreading the gospel? Are we serious about this thing? And I think I think we're all close. When I look at the people in this church, I see nothing but love and compassion. I think it, gets, it just gets overwhelming sometimes when you just look out there and, and you see what's going on. Like the, the amount of evil that's happening in the world it's just it's debilitating we are as in the day of Noah that's, that's where we at so I say let's keep our heads up let's trust in God let's read our Bibles let's get on our knees and pray let's return to holiness and let's spread the gospel and God will take care of the rest alright let's go our heads and pray Lord First, thank you for the land and giving us an opportunity. If you had already come back, Lord, a lot of us here would be in trouble. So thank you so much for giving us this opportunity. Sometimes what we think is bad is good because you see the big picture. Lord, there's so much work left to be done, and there's so much work to be done internally, Lord. And we ask that you come into our hearts and you do that work with us in our hearts because we can't do it, Lord. We need you. Lord, show us and guide us and teach us what we need to do so that we can be a part of your church when you come back. And we just ask this blessing for this church as we do ministry going forward, that we can reach the hearts of people and that we can help them establish that relationship ultimately with you, Lord, because that's that's what they need. They should be able to see you and us, Lord, and we ask that they can do that. Mold us and shape us the way you need to. And, Lord, we just want to praise you. For everything that you do for us, in Jesus' name, amen.